continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount as we are going through the Gospel of Matthew together, picking up in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. You'll see an outline on page 5, and also for your own reading, the Westminster Confession on the Law of God on page 6. Hear now the Word of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So far the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to us today by his Holy Spirit. Imagine life with no law. Kids, that means all of your candy just gets taken the minute you lay your eyes on it. Or someone steals your car or just moves into your house. It's anarchy. It's craziness. Imagine life with no gospel, no grace, no good news, no Christ. Christ, loved ones, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension is the gospel. We need both the law and the gospel, don't we? God has given us both. And most theological mistakes and errors which lead to problems in the Christian life happen because of a misunderstanding of the law and the gospel. For instance, maybe you've heard someone say, I'm going to live the gospel. Have you ever heard that phrase? I'm not trying to just hammer down on particular phrases, but here's an example. Loved ones, that's impossible. We can't live the gospel or then we would be the savior of the world. The gospel is Christ, his work, his person, who he is. The law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law, but we're not good. The law commands, but it cannot give because we're sinful. It tells us what must be done, but it cannot bring it about as it tells us. The good news of the gospel is God has done in Christ what the law could not do in us. In Christ, God finds the perfect substitute for our sins and the fulfiller of all righteousness for us. So we're not only forgiven, but we're righteous by faith in Christ. We confess that today. Christ, the last Adam, the faithful Israel, succeeded. So as we trust in him, we have rest Rest in God, rest from trying to earn God's favor, rest from trying to perform. So then what about the law for us today? Well, that's what Jesus is going to be talking to us about here in Matthew 5. I want to say at the beginning, and I'll say it again, we believe the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, remains for the Christian, even as the ceremonial and civil laws of the Old Covenant are obsolete, along with that Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant itself. Only as those who trust in Jesus, who kept the covenant of works, 
Can we inherit all the blessings of the covenant of grace? And then can we say, how I love your law, O God. This, in some ways, is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, this passage. In this passage, we see Jesus' correct misunderstandings of the law and point us to the hope that we have as those who are blessed in him. First, Christ and the law. What Jesus does in verse 17 is begin to say, okay, maybe you've misunderstood what I've said. See that? I do not want you to think I've come to do something. What's he saying? Well, he's talking to those who are in Israel who might think that now that Christ has come, all the Gentiles over the world are going to come under the Mosaic law. All of it. Moral, civil, ceremonial. And they're saying, Jesus, you haven't talked about the law much. Are you against the law? Is there a law in your kingdom? Jesus, you spend a lot of time with sinners. You have dinner with them. Are you anti-law? That's kind of what his opponents have said. Jesus, you are an antinomian, meaning anti-law. So Jesus says, did I come to abolish all law? On the other hand, there are some who have said that. Marcion, a second century heretic, who said the Old Testament God is a God of wrath and evil, New Testament a God of love and grace. Is that what Jesus came to do? No. In fact, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish or knock down the law. Kids, think about your Legos or your blocks at home. You sometimes build them and then sometimes you scatter them, right? Did Jesus come to rip down the Legos? Did he come to destroy the Bible? To pick it apart? He said, no, I'm the one who gave the law. I'm not anti-law. I'm not anti-Old Testament. I'm not anti-obedience. I didn't come to abolish, he says, but to fulfill. Like you fill up your water bottle, kids, as you're heading out on a bike ride. What does fulfill mean? Well, he's speaking here of the law and the prophets. So in some way, he's talking about the entire Old Testament. Bringing this, Kevin DeYoung says, to completion, to its goal. The Old Testament is incomplete apart from Christ. The law can never and was never meant to stand on its own. Romans 10, Christ is the end, the goal, the reference point to which the law always pointed. We saw this a couple of weeks ago on the Emmaus Road. Christ is the one the whole Old Testament is about. That's what we want you to know as Emmaus Road Reformed Church. The key to understanding the Bible is Christ. How does this point to Christ? How did Jesus fulfill this? How then do I worship him and now live in light of that as I'm united to Christ? How does Jesus fulfill the prophets? All the promises of God, 2 Corinthians, find their yes and amen in Christ. There are direct prophecies. There are typologies. There are pictures. There are institutions. All of it is pointing to Jesus. So he's the one to crush the head of the serpent. He's the one to fulfill the promises made to Abraham. Through Christ, all the nations will be blessed. He's the greater son of David who sits on the throne forever. He's the one who's born of a virgin in Bethlehem under the law. 
He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's the risen Savior the Psalms prophesied of in Psalm 16. He's the one who fulfills the temple. As we come to worship today, we are living stones being built up into Christ who is the temple of God. You don't need a physical temple anymore. Christ is the temple. He's the true Israel of God. He's the one who said to Abraham before, uh, to, to the Pharisees before Abraham was, I am. He's the eternal son of God in the flesh. He fulfills the prophets. How does he fulfill the law? Well, what is the law of God? That's one reason I printed out for us Westminster Confession of Faith 19. We're not going to read through it, but this afternoon, it's an encouragement to look at it. The confession rightly says God gave to Adam a law, the covenant of works, by which he bound Adam and all of his posterity to personal obedience, promised life on the keeping of it, threatened death on the breaking of it. Now, after the fall, this law continues to be a perfect rule of righteousness, and it was delivered by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. We read today the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The laws that governed Israel, and a lot of confusion can come if we miss this, are categorized, however. There's moral law, the Ten Commandments, there's civil law, and there's ceremonial law. Moral law. What is God like? What's his character like? We see that revealed in the Ten Commandments. These are the eternal standards God has given, binding to all people in all places at all times. Do they still operate today? Yes. Does Christ fulfill this moral law? He did. He kept the moral demands. He's the last Adam, keeping the covenant of works, delighting to do his Father's will. Fulfilling perfect obedience. So we who trust in Christ, as we confess today, are declared righteous before God by Christ's righteousness imputed to us. It's as if then we had never committed nor had any sin, and as if we had fully accomplished all the obedience that the law requires of us if we accept these benefits with a believing heart. If we trust in Jesus today, by faith alone, he covers your sin. He has imputed to you his righteousness, and you stand justified before God because of that. Apart from our works, the works of Christ save us. Not our faithfulness, not our obedience, not our obedient faith. Christ alone, faith and justification receives and rests in him. Not only did Christ keep those demands of the law, in his death he bears the curse of the law. As he died, we see the reality of the law's demand for holiness. He took that curse on himself, not for his sins, but for ours. So the law's demands for justice are met in Christ on the cross. He takes away the penalty for sin, for us, as he dies for that sin. What about the civil law? Does Christ fulfill this? He does. The Westminster speaks of a 
civil or judicial law of God that expires with the people of Israel, not obliging any further now, further than the general equity may require. That's a mouthful. (laughs) Westminster 19.4. What does that mean? Civil laws governed Israel as a theocracy. Laws about kings, succession, the governance of the nation. But under Israel, Moses, as we know, in those days, this was a theocracy, a unique state. So unlike moral laws, these civil laws are no longer binding on an individual Christian or a nation. They were given to Israel at a specific time. They've ceased. Jesus and Paul didn't live in a theocracy. They lived in the Roman Empire. How does Jesus fulfill this? Do you remember some of the punishments for these judicial laws? Adulterers were to be stoned. Is that the job of the President of the United States? No. Is that given to the church? Not in that way. Church discipline done in love and in truth fulfills these civil laws. So we don't stone people. Church discipline is exercised. Christ kept it all. That's the, the, the good news as well. He's judged in our place. We are the ones who have broken that law, deserving that judgment, deserving that stoning. He took it for us. What about wisdom principles? Well, the Westminster rightly says there's general equity from the civil law that applies. What does that mean? Leviticus 19. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Hmm. So you own a business in the Old Testament. You've got to pay your worker every night. So, Christian, if you pay people, does that mean you have to pay them every day today? No. What about general equity? Meaning, is there a principle here? There is. Pay your employee what you agree to pay him. Pay him fairly and don't delay unnecessarily when the paycheck is due. That's kind of a general equity principle, for instance. Here's another example. Old Testament civil law. You've got a roof. You have to have a railing around it. That's a law. So what about our roofs? What if you go up on the roof and you don't have a railing and you have to fix something? Are you breaking the law of God? No. What's the general equity? Make sure your house is safe for children and adults and all who enter. That's the kind of principle. We can do weird things with our minds if we start to think, well, we've got to have parapets and we've got to pay people every night. General equity. How about the ceremonial law? This would refer to priesthood, sacrifices, tabernacle. Food laws, clothing laws. So in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, you can't come to worship if you have two different parts of types of cloth on your clothing. So Derek Thomas says, if it's polyester and cotton, if you're wearing that today, you're breaking the law. If you don't have tassels that are blue coming out of your collar, you're breaking the law. None of us has tassels, I don't think. Or bacon. Anyone have bacon or pork sausages this morning? Or any sort of those foods? Then you're breaking the law. Does Jesus expect us to fulfill those? No. 
And here's where sometimes a lot of non-Christians can read that, and and if we don't know what we believe and why we believe it, we can kind of misunderstand or misinterpret this to them. Christ fills up and fills out the Scriptures. The ceremonial laws are no longer necessary. Clothing laws, food laws, had a redemptive historical purpose. It was a shadow, Colossians says, of what is to come. Dietary laws, as one man says, were designed to make a person physically clean enough to go to the tabernacle and worship God. It's like a visual aid being taught that God requires purity to enter his presence. Dietary, cleansing, purity laws all foreshadow Christ. He makes us pure. We don't clean ourselves up to come to church. We don't do enough to make God pleased enough to enter. Christ did it. We worship him. We trust him. The whole sacrificial system was pointing to Christ. Kids, have you heard of Pavlov's dog? You ring the bell. The dog learns. The bell means food. The dog comes and expects to eat. The Old Testament sacrifices are kind of like that. Teaching the people, sin requires blood and death and sacrifice. God is holy. Justice must be done. Someone must pay for that sin. All of those sacrifices, all of that blood, all of those years, all of those animals, pointing to Jesus. The priest and the sacrifice himself. The shepherd and the lamb who lays down his life for the sins of his sheep. The final priest. Jesus does not abolish the law, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law. He fulfills it. And verse 18 says, I came, Jesus says, not to remove the least stroke from the law. He's saying, I gave this law, I have the authority as God, and I'm not setting it aside. He speaks here of, in the old language, jots and tittles. Have you heard that? Or the word here is iota, the Greek letter, or a Hebrew word called yod, like a little comma. DeYoung says there are over 66,000 yods in the Old Testament, the smallest Greek letter. Jesus didn't come to abolish them. He didn't remove them. Not even the smallest part of Scripture was taken away. What is Jesus' doctrine of Scripture? Here's what it is. Scripture is the inspired, immutable, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, necessary, sufficient Word of God. Whoa. It is perspicuous. It is clear. We're not going to define all those things, but that's what Jesus teaches. That's what we believe. The Bible can't be broken. That's the point. Jesus upholds the authority of Scripture. He is the Word in flesh. And Christ, the Word in flesh, and the Word in Scripture harmonize. They are both divine revelation. They are both from God. People today ask, well, has God spoken? Do we really know what God said? God himself has revealed himself. He is a God who has 
come near to us in grace to restore us to fellowship with himself by revealing himself to us in the scriptures. He has spoken. In these last days, he has spoken by his son. And every page and every verse and every word on every part of your Bible is the inspired, authoritative, unerring, unbreaking word of God. You have that right before you, right now, as you're reading. God is speaking to you in his word. God is feeding you spiritual food in his word. Christian, do you believe that? How do you relate to the law of God? Is our view of the law of God the same as Christ's view of the law of God? Have we added to it? Have we taken away from it? Secondly, let's see what that means. The Christian and the law. Jesus has an unbreakable allegiance to Scripture. He's teaching us as his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount how we should view and practice and live in light of that as those who are in Christ. So he says, verse 19, the Christian believer doesn't relax any of the commands of the Bible. What's he saying? Well, some would be anti-law. Remember I said they accused Jesus of being anti-law. He wasn't. But some today will say, I'm anti-law, anti-nomian. So they will attack the clarity of the Bible, elevate human reason above the Bible, reject the sufficiency of the Bible. That's a common move today. The Bible doesn't really speak to the issues we have today. We have issues that are big about marriage and sexuality and gender, and the Bible doesn't speak to that. Or the Bible is out of date on that. Or the Bible doesn't really mean that. Or the Bible was teaching something the opposite of that. It's all across the board. Has God really said? Jesus says, don't take away from the word of God. It's disobedient. And it means someone is probably not in the kingdom. There's debate. Does that mean they're least in the kingdom, they're in the kingdom, but not really in the kingdom? I don't know. But his point is clear in the warning. You do not inherit the kingdom of heaven if you start to mess around with the Bible. This is God's word. So a common phrase you'll hear people say, well, I'm being more grace-filled by denying the law. It's not gospel-centered or grace-filled to set aside the law of God or any part of the Bible. The Bible's true. Adam and Eve, do they really live? Yeah. Was there a flood? Yes. Did the Son of God become incarnate and born of a virgin? Yes. Was he bodily raised from the dead? Yes. And the way we begin to love the Word of God and not just know about it, is to, to study it and to pray for the Spirit to bless it to our hearts. We can kind of intellectually ass assert those things and then practically live as if God is not existent. We can intellectually say, yeah, I believe in a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, but live as if the resurrection power of Jesus has no effect on our life. We can assert the doctrine and the Bible never gets opened. 
for all of us, for pastors too. Remember Spurgeon? He said, John Bunyan, you talk to that guy, Pilgrim's Progress, I bet if you pricked him, Spurgeon said, what would come out of his body? Bibline. Meaning the Bible flows out of him like blood flows out of your finger, kids, when you prick it. Because he knew the Bible. He loved the Bible. He fed on the Bible. So his language, his conversations, his life was filled with the Bible. Jesus wants that for you and me. Christ says, do not take away from the law. Antinomian. What does Jesus say in verse 20? He begins here now to talk to scribes and Pharisees. So these are the guys that would have said, yeah, we do that, Jesus. You're the one who doesn't. We are actually better than the law. Now Jesus goes at what they were doing and why they were doing it. Ligon Duncan says, when Jesus diagnoses the Pharisees and the scribes, not only here but throughout the Bible, here are five things he's saying. I think this helps us. Big picture. What is Jesus saying of the Pharisees? Duncan says, first, they are partial keepers of the law. They paid attention to the small details and they missed the big point. Love for God and love for neighbor. Second, it was all external. They put on a show. There was no obedience from the heart. There's no joy. Obedience is a burden for them. So they're putting a fence around the law that they create and saying, if you're inside my fence, you're righteous. If you're outside it, you're not. If you do certain things, God loves you. If you don't, God doesn't. Third, Pharisees, he says in the scriptures, Jesus says, are man-pleasers. They're just after the, the praise of people. Fourth, they are prideful in their law-keeping. And fifth, they trust in themselves. So when Jesus and Paul talk about Pharisees, that's what they're saying. Jesus is not saying you care too much about the law, Pharisee. He's saying you don't care enough about it. He says, I don't want your righteousness. See that, verse 20? I want a greater righteousness. Yes, the imputed righteousness of Christ. But he's talking here about sanctification. He's talking about an obedience from the heart. He's talking about loving the law of God. Loved ones, someone who loves the law loves holiness, loves obedience, is not a legalist. Jesus is not against law-keeping. He's against hypocritical law-keeping. It is not legalism to talk about obedience in the Christian life or a desire to keep the law and love God and his law. For anyone who thinks, I don't need to follow Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as he's about to talk about anger, and marriage, and divorce, and money, and telling the truth. I don't need that stuff. Jesus says, you're not in the kingdom of heaven. That is not legalism. Do you understand that? So we have to say what it's not. But what is it? Did it die with the New Testament Pharisees? No. 
When Derek Thomas speaks of one of the most important books he's read in over four decades, that means we should get it. Maybe you've read it, The Whole Christ, Sinclair Ferguson. If you haven't, please get it. It's one of those books you you and I should keep going back to. Ferguson says this, legalism is the default mode of the human heart. We're all wired for that. We're all born that way, and it's complex. It's deadly. It's dangerous. It separates the law of God from the person of God. Legalism is not seeing God's character, not seeing that God is loving and generous and wise and good. It's not seeing that God gave the law for our good. He's not a policeman who wants to deprive you of joy, kids. When kids, when other people say, well, just come along and and do this, have some fun. God's not trying to deprive you of fun. He made you. He loves you. He knows what's best for you. Legalism distorts the gospel and the law. Ferguson says, a legalist distorts the gospel by mixing the law with it, as if the gospel has to do with our obedience. A legalist distorts the law by forgetting that God gave the law to his people in love as a light for their path. Legalism is as old as Eden, Ferguson says. Nothing new. It is any teaching that diminishes the grace of God in Christ. Adam and Eve rejected God's law, they ate of the fruit, antinomian, which was a result of their distorted view of God, legalism. They're, they're connected. They lost sight of God himself. And this disease of legalism comes in so many different ways. It's so complex, and it harms so many of our relationships where legalism is present in a friendship, in a marriage, in a school, in a business, in a church, in a neighborhood. It just rips people apart. This is not just a problem in the church, loved ones. The unbeliever is legalistic in all sorts of different ways. That's Ferguson's point. And as Christians, we've been freed from that. We're not in Adam anymore, but we go back to it. How do we go back to it? Similar to Ligon Duncan, This, however, applies it a little bit more directly. Liam Gallagher and Ferguson together. How about that? Legalism, first of all, is salvation by law-keeping. That's one form. You do enough, you earn enough to get God's favor. The second form of legalism, adding our man-made rules and traditions to the authoritative word of God. That's what the Pharisees did. They had 612 laws, including laws about not pulling out hair on the Sabbath because then you're reaping and you're working. Gallagher, the third form of legalism, here's where it really cuts close. Offering begrudging obedience to God. Obeying the law for the wrong motive. I obey God so I can get X. I use my abilities to get what I want out of God, and he's got to give it to me if I obey. So in this sense, legalism is a form of the prosperity gospel. You do this, you get that. 
Legalism is reducing Christianity to rules and things we do to be more blessed by God. If we obey the law for a motive other than wanting to love and please Jesus, that's legalism. Fourth, legalism is when people confuse weightier matters of the law with lesser matters of the law. So they get all worked up about little things, which are not unimportant, but they neglect the big things. Jesus to the Pharisees, you're talking about the tithe, and you're focusing on the tithe, but you're neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You're neglecting love for God and each other. Legalism displays itself in a person when we are rigid, harsh, and judgmental based on our rules, not God's law. A legalist is unteachable. They're right. You're wrong. They demand perfection. They're impatient with those who don't agree, and they run them down. Legalism is a person who really doesn't love God or their neighbor much, and it can multiply. It can spread. In a home, in a church, in a neighborhood, in a workplace. How do we avoid legalism and antinomianism? By recognizing that on things indifferent, there's Christian liberty. Westminster Confession 20. Christians will differ on opinions, and they'll say, well, my opinion's informed by the word of God here, and, and let's look at that. But the problem is when then we expect others to agree on this matter of indifference. Where the law of God speaks directly, we're called to obey. Where Scripture doesn't speak directly, we have Christian liberty that we may have disagreements together on. But the legalist wants to bind the conscience of the person they're talking to to things not in the Bible. And the legalist wants to remove Christian liberty from things indifferent. Dear brother and sister, this church will not bind your conscience apart from Scripture. What do those matters of indifference look like? In love, that would be a good conversation. Not for today. I'm not going to keep you for hours, but that would be something to talk about, how we can love each other in this. Jesus says, avoid legalism and antinomianism, because as Ferguson says, they are both non-identical twins from the same womb. They're both the same spiritual problem. They both miss Christ. There's no grace, there's no Christ, there's no gospel. So the antidote to both of them is a gospel culture among us, in our hearts, and in our homes. What do I mean by that? Here's Ferguson. What gives you a warrant as a sinner to believe in Jesus for forgiveness, for salvation? Is it the quality of your conviction and repentance? No. The warrant for believing in Christ is nothing in us. It is Christ alone. Well, we were sinners. Christ died for us. Faith 
grasps the mercy of God in Christ, and repentance is the fruit of faith. We must not put the cart before the horse. Legalism and antinomianism have the same root. Eve thought God was forbidding her, permitting her too little. That view of legalism drove her antinomian rebellion against him. You see how this is tied together? The antinomian is a legalist, meaning the same heart. They have different views of the law in some way, but neither are biblical views. They're antithetical, both of them, to grace. So the law, Ferguson says, is a rule of life for us, not a covenant of works that we have to perform. How do I know if I'm a practical legalist? It's a good question, isn't it? Ferguson says, do I get mad when another person is honored that I think I should have gotten that? If so, I'm functioning as if I have to perform something. And I'm relating to God based on my performance. Another reason, or another, another form. When we are jealous, this one cuts to all of us, doesn't it? Our jealousy means our view of identity and our, our self-worth has been tied in with performance, not who we are in Christ. So we are thinking, I, I've got to be better than that person. I've got to get this. I earn that. There is another form of our heart and the legalism of it. Paul says Christ has set you free. He says you can't relate to God on the basis of your works. If you do, there's no grace, like Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. Either works or grace. You can't have both. One of them has to go. So do we relate to God based on our performance or Christ's performance? Do we have faith in Christ or in Christianity and our ability to live it out? and then pointing fingers when we think others aren't living it in the way we think they should. What about antinomianism? We're practically antinomian when we don't realize sin still lives in us. When we think we have gotten beyond that. When we think, okay, that's sin, I'm done with it. I'm good, no more, I'm fine. We are practically antinomian when we despise the gospel and fail to realize that union with Christ leads to the requirements of the law being fulfilled in us by the Spirit. The law is written on our hearts, and the assurance of salvation we have in Christ grows, but it at times grows slowly, Calvin said. You know this feeling. Part of you loves to come to worship, and part of you says, I'm just going to stay home. I'm not going to come. I've got better things to do. I'm not going to talk to that person. I'm not going to do this. Right? We, we know that feeling. We know that we are called to love our brother and sister kids, but it's so much easier to hit them and to say mean things to them and to walk away from them rather than forgive them and love them. This is a tension. It's a, a battle we face. Because Calvin said we all remain partly unbelievers until we die. Does that mean any attempt to obey the law of God is legalism? Certainly not. 
the uses of the law of God, the moral law. We've talked about it. The law shows us our sin. It shows us our Savior. It drives us to Christ. It's, secondly, a civil use to curb evil in society. And thirdly, it's the rule of life. You've been freed from condemnation. That's what Christian liberty says. Freed from sin, freed from the devil, freed from hell, freed from condemnation, freed from guilt in Christ. Now the law is your delight. Now, like David, we love the law because we're in Jesus, the last Adam. Because we obey not to be saved, but because we've been saved. When it comes to matters of doctrine, Paul does not confuse justification and sanctification or the law and the gospel. That's what the legalist does. Paul doesn't rip apart justification and sanctification. That's what the antinomian does. Paul says, in Christ, the law is not your enemy, it's your friend. The gospel is the engine of the train. The law, those are the tracks the train runs on. The third use of the law reminds us that in Christ, the Christian, the gospel culture of a church leads us to say, I love your law, O God. All of the Ten Commandments still apply to us. Negative and positive. Do not murder. Love your brother. There's a delight we have in this. And it means the way we treat each other flows out of who we ha- what we have and who we are in Jesus. Where's your heart today, Emmaus Road? Is it with the Pharisees having a grudging obedience to God? Or is it with a disciple of Jesus delighting in God's law, wanting to be conformed to the image of my Savior and exalting in him, in his righteousness, in his obedience, in his beauty, in his grace, in his loveliness, and and in his mercy to us together as the family of God? Let's pray. Father, give us joy as a church in Jesus that we would speak the truth in love, that we would not lose heart, that we would have a firm confidence in Jesus, a courage, a Christ-like holiness. May the beatitudes, the beauty of these things, be a picture of how we love and live in our hearts in the family of God here. May we be quick to show grace, quick to repent, And may we love you, O God, in new obedience and one another through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.